Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Rita, your host. Thank you for tuning in. It's our privilege to welcome you to the program today and please stay with us for this hour as we are looking in the Bible to find out how to minister to the powerful. We are still under this um, great theme, God's mission, my mission. I would like to say hello to our panel. It's good to have with us today, Len. Thank you for joining us. Hello, listeners, and we're glad you've joined us. Hi, Denise. Thank you for uh, being part of this discussion. Hi, Nick. I'm really looking forward to the study today. Jerry, it's good to have you with us, too. Thank you, Nick. Privileged to be here. Brenton, it's good to have you with us again today. Nick, thank you. This is a very challenging subject. I'm sure it's going to be interesting as we share it with our listeners. And Lija, thank you for joining. Yes, thank you so much. It's so good to deep down in God's Word. Will, it's good to have you with us. Thank you for joining. Thank you, Nick, and it's lovely to be here. And hello, Joe. Thank you for uh, joining us today. I would like to say thank you for... Uh, Preparing this Bible study, you are going to facilitate this discussion. Thank you, and you're welcome. Well, uh, well, I'll just hand it over to you. Joe, please take us through. I'd like to begin with uh, a text in Matthew sixteen twenty six. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And it's a question that has been on people's minds and has uh, given us much food for thought. But before we dig into the lesson, I'd really like to ask Will to pray for us if that's possible. Thanks, Will. Certainly. Lord Jesus, you've expressed the wish that we should all be with you where you are. And so we offer ourselves to be agents to carry that invitation to all the world. Help us to be spirit-filled instruments to invite others to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm. Amen. Amen. Well, today we will look at God's mission and our mission to the powerful. This is in juxtaposition to last time when we discussed our mission to the needy. Well, who are the rich and powerful? Often we think of them as the fabulously rich, the rock stars, the movie stars, shipping and mining tycoons as being the rich and powerful, but most of us would rarely have opportunity to cross paths with these people. So we might be tempted to think that this topic doesn't really apply to me or to you, but in reality, it could be anyone whom I perceive as more powerful than myself, whether due to money, status, education, or connections. It it could be my employer, the neighbor who lives in a mansion down the street and owns a factory. It could be a senator or a politician in my in my city. Um, and they, I might think, are so much better off than myself and be tempted to think that because they are in this special position, they don't need anything, certainly nothing I might have to offer. After all, aren't their lives perfect? They can buy anything they want, do whatever they like, go on long holidays, and subsequently are happy and living satisfied lives. Maybe it's because I think if I had their money, status, level of recognition and achievement, I certainly would be happy. But is this the case? Is this how many think? We know the reality is vastly different. 
all people, whether rich or poor, no matter what walk of life or, you know, will face challenges. They may be different challenges, but challenges just the same. No one has got it easy. Hardship comes to all. Some hide it better. The truth is that no matter how much money I have or what I do in life, if I don't have God first and centre, I really have nothing, zilch of any value. All things pass, but God alone is eternal. Well, if that is the case, if I didn't know God, I certainly would want someone to at least give me a chance to find something more satisfying than what this world has to offer. Sometimes we as Christians can forget about the spiritual needs of those who are wealthy, well-connected and successful, and only focus on those who we see as needy. Which brings me to my first question. Lydia, do the wealthy, successful and influential need to hear the gospel? Does God want them in the kingdom too? And who does God want saved? And how do we know this? Of course, Joe, God is very interested and concerned about the salvation of the rich and the powerful as he is about the weak and the needy. Because Christ died for all people, regardless of their background, ethnicity, gender, or social status. Christ loves people, and his death was for all humanity. So, because God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth, which it says in First Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world, as it says in First John chapter 2, verse 2. Well, thank you for that. It is very clear that God wants everyone to be saved. That's why we find accounts in the Bible of all sorts of people being reached for God. Today, we will be looking at a handful of people who were considered powerful and privileged in Bible times and how God worked in their lives to both save them and to lead them to be a blessing to others. Could we learn something from these examples? One thing is very clear, and that is that God did not wait until New Testament times to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Let's start with Nebuchadnezzar. Denise, in the book of Daniel, we have a story of Nebuchadnezzar. Who was he and what was his position? Nebuchadnezzar was the son of Nabopolassar, who was the first king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And together they built up a glorious city, the city of Babylon, which was unsurpassed in the ancient world. Nebuchadnezzar was a great military leader before he became king after his father died. He conquered, amongst other places, Assyria, Egypt and Judah. The city of Babylon was an important centre. It was enormous, with over 300 temples, an exquisite palace, surrounded by double walls. They were double thickness, 12 and 22 feet. Sorry, I've used feet instead of metres. The walls had eight major gates at intervals. All the gates were named after Babylonian gods. The most famous is the Ishtar Gate, excavated by the Germans and reconstructed in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. They were also home to the famous Hanging Gardens, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which were 20 metres high with slopes, terraces and exquisite gardens, and these were an architectural delight. He conquered Syria and Palestine and initiated the Babylonian captivity of the Jewish population 
which was prophesied in Jeremiah as punishment for rejecting their covenant with God. He reigned for 43 years from 605 to 562 BCE, and he was the longest reigning king of the Babylonian dynasty. The interesting thing is that God used Nebuchadnezzar for his divine purposes, even though Nebuchadnezzar wasn't really aware of that. Nebuchadnezzar's dominion grew so much that he was like a god and he thought himself a god who ought to be worshipped. Well, he certainly was um, the head of a superpower, a back then superpower. Brenton, tell us about how God reached out to Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, called in his wise men, uh, who was supposed to be able to interpret dreams, but uh, he asked them to not only tell him what he dreamed, but what the interpretation was. And this happened in the second year of his reign. Now, Daniel and his three friends had become part of the wise men we would call the intelligentsia of the day. And because the wise men were not able to interpret the dream, Nebuchadnezzar was going to execute them. So Daniel went into the king and asked for time and said, and he and his companions actually prayed that God would give them wisdom, give them the dream and also the interpretation, which God did. And how did God reach Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2? Nebuchadnezzar was used to images. What did God use in his dream? He used an image. And uh, so that was something that Nebuchadnezzar was familiar with. What God demonstrated in chapter 2 is that he, the all-powerful, the all-knowing God, could not only reveal what you had dreamt, but he could also reveal the future. And that this God that Daniel and his three friends worshipped was a God that could tell you the future right down till the coming of Christ. And in the end of chapter 2, he acknowledges that. He says, truly, your God is a God of God and a Lord of kings that you were able to reveal this secret to me. In chapter 3, we have Nebuchadnezzar setting up an image, probably, Joe, something similar to what was in Daniel 2, except it was all of gold. He was actually defiantly declaring that his kingdom would not end and that uh, it would stand forever. Daniel's three friends were willing to forego their lives in order to uh, worship the true God. And at the end of chapter 3, after they were miraculously delivered from what we know as the burning fiery furnace, um, he acknowledges that um, these men uh, were true to God and they frustrated the design of the king and that as a result of that, they were willing to give their lives rather than worship anybody other than the true God. So in chapter 3, he's revealing that he is the protector of those who worship him. He is the one who is true to those who are true to him. Chapter four is basically, uh, we would call it the testimony, Joe, of Nebuchadnezzar. It's a number of years later. It may have been as many as 20 or 30 years later that chapter four was written where Nebuchadnezzar actually went mad for a time uh, because of his arrogance and his pride. And when he came to himself again god restored his kingdom to him and he acknowledged it at the end of chapter four by saying that god's ways are true and just and there's no threatenings or anything of that nature he just he, i believe he basically acknowledges god as his god 
And I believe that one day soon we will see him in the kingdom of heaven because one of the people I want to talk to when I get to heaven is Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, he would be an interesting person to talk to. Now, through all these experiences, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't on his own. Who did God use to minister to King Nebuchadnezzar? We know that it wasn't a once-off occasion. And if you could tell us, Len, about this person who had a pivotal role in Nebuchadnezzar's faith journey. Well, his name has already been mentioned. It was Daniel, who was given a Babylonian name of um, Belteshazzar. And that is a significant name, but I won't talk about that at the moment. Who was Daniel? Well, he was actually taken from the land of Palestine as a slave. But he was a privileged slave because the king wanted to take the cream of the crop, if you like, train them up in the ways of the Babylonians, and uh, he and others who were also taken would become civil servants. Daniel was a civil servant. Now, what sort of a man was he? Well, he was a man of integrity. He was a humble man. He was a God-fearing man, and the king actually recognized this after he had the uh, second significant dream that Brenton has already referred to. The Bible says in Daniel 4, verse 18, here are the words of Nebuchadnezzar. You can interpret the dream because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Some versions of the Bible say the spirit of God is in you. So this is the type of man who was able to minister to Nebuchadnezzar. As I said, it didn't happen just once. And Nebuchadnezzar recognized the value of this man who was humble, who was clever, who was full of integrity, and who could be trusted. And if you read through the book of Daniel, you'll see how Daniel was given promotion, if you like. He went up through the ranks So he was actually next in power to the king himself. And yet, to this man, who Nebuchadnezzar, that's the man I'm now talking about, who was the most powerful man on earth, here a Hebrew slave was ministering to him. Now, I read before what the king said about Daniel, and I'll do it again. But you can interpret the dream because the spirit of of God is in you. And I just want to draw something from this, that we as God's humble, faithful servants are able to minister to people who are very powerful because they have needs too. They might have riches, they might have influence and all the rest of it but they have other needs, and one of those needs is a spiritual need. A lot of them won't recognize it, but everybody has some sort of spiritual need. So just as Daniel was used in the service of the king and met a need that the king had, we, as just faithful, trustworthy, 
God-believing Christians can be of help to them as well. Thank you for that, Len. Yes, Daniel was uh, obedient to God and consistently upright, consistently did the right thing. Now, as Brenton already mentioned, that there could have been as many as 20 years between the experiences that Nebuchadnezzar had with God, a a one-to-one sort of experience. Nick, what does this teach us about God? And what can we learn from this as we minister to other people? Can we expect, can we always expect quick results? And are quick results always genuine? Well, of course, uh, Joe and panel, uh, we as human beings, we always want quick results in most of the things. And uh, this is not an exception when we are um, working, you know, in ministry, uh, trying to reach out to people. And particularly as we are talking today about uh, the powerful, you know, it could be two-way approach. Sometimes to be scared, not even to go there, not to bother, not to, to attempt to minister because uh, you'll think, oh, they are so powerful. They, who am I to say the things or to, to instruct or whatever? But that was not the case, as we pointed out so far with those people who approached the most powerful people in the world at that time. I talk about Nebuchadnezzar and I believe uh, Daniel, and not only Daniel, because even other people in, in, in the situation, his friends, they were patient. They just lived day by day, representing God, doing their job faithfully, and not to uh, stress up that um, they may not have results. For, for that reason, I believe, uh, Joe, uh, we need to be connected with God in everything what we do, and the rest of it, it will fall in place at the right time. That's right. That is so true. Um, God is very patient and long-suffering, and we too need to exhibit this patience. Yeah. Jerry, successful people often attribute their success to themselves. It is a little surprise that Nebuchadnezzar did this as well. So, you know, often we forget to give God the appreciation and gratitude, especially when things go well for us. Sometimes we forget, we, like Nebuchadnezzar, you know, we're tempted to say, isn't this a great thing that I have done by my own strength? How clever. Who is the source of all that we are and have and achieve? I think Job sheds a little light on that. And also, would you mind commenting on can our own achievements blind us to our need for God? Yeah, the text you referred to from Job says the life of every living thing is in his hand as well as the breath of all mankind. Reminds me of what Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. You know, we tend to think um, if it's to be, it's up to me. And that's true to a certain degree. But we like to give ourselves the uh, all the credit for anything that we can achieve or do. We have to be careful of that. There's a, a reference in the book of Deuteronomy, Joe, that I'd like to read, if I may, from chapter 8. I think it sums it up really well. And I'm reading from the New King James Bible. It says there, This is Moses talking to the children of Israel just before they enter the Promised Land. 
Now, they've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, so he reminds them. He says, uh, don't forget the Lord. And starting, this is chapter 8, starting in verse 11, he says, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest, when you have eaten and are full, and have built yourself beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness, in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he, uh, and that he might test you to do you good in the end, that you say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. So it's the credit should go to God and not to ourselves. And it is easy, isn't it, to, to give yourself the credit for something you've achieved. If you've put in the hard yards, you know, if... Uh, yeah, if, if you've put in the effort, but we have to be very careful that, um, as I said previously, Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. To God be the glory always for all things. Amen. Lynn. Oh, just a very quick comment. I like to think of it this way. I can do what I can do because God permits it. If he decides that I will not take another breath, then I'm done for. But um, as has already been said, without me, you can do nothing. So while we are granted life, we are able to do things, but we must give God the credit because he gives us the life in which we are able to do stuff. Thank you. Nick, you've got a comment. That was a very interesting point while Len uh you know, brought up there that uh, only we can do what God allows us to do. I think it's, if we look in the context of our study also today, if we are not intentional of something to do, you know, we may miss out on what God wants us to do. And, you know, God works with us. It's not that God planned everything for us. And even if we don't do things, we must or we may say, oh, well, that's God's will, that I don't need to do those things. You see, that's a very interesting uh, aspect. We need to really know what's the will of God and then allow God to work his plan with us. Brenton? Joe, can I put a counterpoint to this? There is an assumption um, often by those of us who maybe don't consider ourselves wealthy, that the wealthy uh, have security in their wealth, whether it's in investments or property or uh, possessions or whatever it happens to be. Anybody who follows current events recognises, and I was only reading it the other day, 
and listening to it on the media. Um, our world is very precariously balanced financially at the present time. So to assume that your riches are, uh, shall we say, a hedge or a safeguard against anything in the future maybe is a futile assumption. Therefore, if we're looking at the rich from the point of view, well, they've got riches and that's their protection. Not necessarily so. Um, I think we need to ask God to help us to reach their hearts somehow or another because the Bible says very, very clearly, you read it right at the beginning, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world or a woman uh, and loses his own soul? Uh, how, how do we... How do we help the rich to realize that their possessions and their money are not where it's at? Where it's at is long-term security. And the only long-term security comes from knowing Jesus. Mm, Yes, very good comments. We've seen that success and achievements can be an obstacle to wanting to know God. Will, what are some other obstacles um, there are to reaching the wealthy and powerful among us for God. And are there any obstacles from our end of the spectrum? Well, let's look at the side of the wealthy. Uh, it could be a, any number of things, personal pride, self-sufficiency, uh, even skepticism. Skepticism simply because many of them have been targets of exploitation. They might harbour misconceptions about religion or may have had previous bad experiences. Looking at it from our side, the average person may feel intimidated by wealth and success or even confronting powerful people. Apart from dealing with their daunting status and prestige, we even encounter some physical barriers as well. We know we might see high walls and gated communities. And in our minds, we automatically assume that they want to shut us out or perhaps even shut out God. You know, this messes with our confidence and erodes our determination to reach them with the gospel. But as our discussion on the panel reveals today, everyone can be reached and should be reached. I might say some only after much trembling and prayer on the part of the gospel worker, though. Well, let's move on to another Gentile, um, someone called Naaman. And Lydia, I've got a question for you. We have this account in the Old Testament of a remarkable story of healing. Who was Naaman and what was his reason for looking for answers beyond his current faith? What was his burden? Okay, according to the Bible, um, as I read in Second Kings chapter 5, verse 1, it says that Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram in Syria. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him, the Lord has given victory to Aram, the king. He was a valiant soldier, a very brave soldier, but he had leprosy. So uh, leprosy, a chronic infectious disease, 
which cause skin lesions and nerve damage, the peripheral uh, nerve damage, uh, results in uh, sensory loss, motor and muscular weakness, and autonomic nerve damage, which is caused by a type of bacteria. In that time, was considered incurable and contagious, which uh, required isolation, total isolation from the community. And uh, because he was the the king's escort, a very trusting person, he was his bodyguard, he didn't want to lose his job. And uh, he looked forward for a cure. He wanted to be healed. He didn't want to lose his job. It was pretty much a death sentence, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. it um you know, there was no cure for it. It was probably like many cancers today. Nick, while Daniel uh, was was there to point Nebuchadnezzar to God, who pointed Naaman to God? How did he hear about Elisha? Yeah, that's a very uh, good question because uh, actually the Bible tells us that um, little girl there, her maiden, who was in the house of Naaman, taken as a slave from Israel. And we can just picture that as what happens today in many instances when innocent young people are just taken away and um, all the focus of the media and everything else is just on uh, on them and all other things. But back in those days, who cared? You know, you are just a servant, a maiden in the house of a powerful man. But this young girl didn't miss the opportunity to talk about what she knew. And this reveals to us another aspect. You don't need to be uh, super able and, you know, have all the degrees and all the things to talk about theologically, about God's plan of salvation for humankind. You don't need to. You just need to have an experience yourself with God and to witness, to be able to watch what's going on around. And this girl, she knew from her background, where she came from, from Israel, that there is a prophet in Israel through whom this master can get some help. And she was even, uh, I believe, so sure that He can be healed. What a faith. What a faith in a little girl. Now, you know, Jesus said, if you don't have faith, like one of these, or if you are not like one of these children, you may not enter the kingdom of God. And sometimes we are uh, turning around all the things, you know, twisting here and there, try to be as, as good as possible. We just need to be faithful and have faith in God and represent God. What I believe here, so far we discuss about all those uh, people who came across Nebuchadnezzar and so on and so forth. You know, they live a daily life, an example to those people surrounding them. And they were just looking for the opportunity. You know, very easily, even this girl, she could be made herself very busy in the house and just let it go being scared, being whatever. But she used that opportunity 
Are we using the opportunities today, which we have, or we are thinking, okay, well, we have something else on the agenda right now, but I'll come to that when possible. Yes, well, she could have, uh, like Daniel, Daniel could have been resentful and angry. Um, the little maid could have been resentful and angry towards her captors, but we find a spirit of benevolence and a reaching out to her captor for God. And it gives us, it teaches us something. And I'm, I, I'll throw this question out. You know, can we, can we be effective while resentful or angry toward people? Daniel and the little maid had to let go of their pain, their own pain, their own resentment, their own anger, and say, well, what can I do? Well, how can I serve God where I am? She was only a slave, and yet she managed to do a great thing. Just quickly on this one, Joe, um, the Israelites had been uh, schooled by God very clearly on what to do in cases of leprosy. Now, here's this young lady who's been taken captive into a heathen home. And it seems, from reading the story, when you read the story, it seems as though Naaman didn't have to self-isolate. He was still in the service of the king. Uh, he was still at home with his wife. And I find putting all of those combinations together, what she would have known probably as a young lady through Jewish customs was not being practiced here in this particular home. That therefore makes her witness to him even the more effective because she's basically saying to him, look, if you went to our place, to Samaria and called for the prophet Elisha, he can do something to help you. So I, I see her witnesses. I, I would say effectiveness wise, it's certainly equal to what Daniel and his three friends were doing. Yes, it's over a much shorter period of time, but I believe as far as effectiveness goes, it's equally effective. In fact, Christ actually spoke about this situation, didn't he? Uh, when yes. in, uh, in Luke, when he um, talked about how in the time of Elisha there were many lepers, but only Naaman the Syrian was the one who was healed. So yeah. I think this sets us up in the rest of our study and what we've looked at so far. The humbler you are and the more you're willing to be used, the more God can use you. And furthermore, the more effective your witness will be to those whom you're trying to witness to. Yes, yeah, she certainly was a blessing to Naaman's home. Now, Naaman goes looking for Elisha and finds him after a bit of a search. Can you tell us, Denise, what did Elisha tell him to do and what was the outcome for this general after his initial reaction? And how close had Naaman come to missing out on a tremendous blessing? Yes, Joe. And I'm going to start in Second Kings 5 from verse 9. I'm going to read from the clear word. And it says, Naaman took his horses and chariots and went to Elisha's house and stood outside the door. The prophet sent his servant out to tell him to go and wash seven times in the Jordan River and his skin would be restored and he would be healed. In verse 11 it says, But Naaman felt insulted and said to himself, I thought the man would at least come out to see me, pray to his God, wave his hand over the d diseased spot and heal me. But all he did was ask me to dip in the little Jordan River. We have bigger, cleaner rivers in Syria to bathe in. Why should I do it here? Even the Abana and the Papa rivers in the city of Damascus are cleaner than the rivers in Israel. Why didn't he tell me to wash in them? Then it says he left in a rage. 
But his servant stopped him and said, wait, if the prophet had asked you to do something great, wouldn't you have done it? So why not watch in the Jordan River? You've got nothing to lose. Naaman listened and decided to do as Elijah had told him. He went to the Jordan River. He dipped his whole body in the water seven times. As he came up the seventh time, suddenly his body was firm and healthy again like that of a young man. His leprosy was gone. In verse 15, it says, With great joy he returned with his servants to Elisha's house. Elisha came out to meet him, and Naaman said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world like the God of Israel. And he wanted to give gifts to Elisha. And as we know the story, Elisha um, didn't want to take them. He said, The God of Israel, whom I serve, I will not let you give me something for what the Lord has done. So he gave all credit to God. So... Naaman nearly walked away. He was insulted. Almost missed out, yeah. His pride was hurt greatly, um, having to dip in this dirty little river. And uh, it was, there were his servants who encouraged him and said, look, it's not, it's not a big thing. It's just a little thing. Why don't you just do it? And he, he did it. And look at the results. And he was converted. Yes. Well, Will, when compared to Nebuchadnezzar's experience, Naaman's conversion came about relatively quickly. What lessons could we learn from these two accounts? Joe, um, if I may just say, a common question I notice at uh, nurseries when you buy fruit trees is how long before the tree is at its robust and mature stage for bearing its best fruit? While it's true that some fruit may appear during the early growth stages, let's consider what experts consider the fruit-bearing stage of specific varieties to be. It may surprise us. Lemon trees, two to three years. An apple tree, four to eight years. A fig tree, eight to ten years. And an avocado tree, ten years and onwards. Similarly, people grow spiritually at different rates. The speed of the conversion does not necessarily make it genuine or less genuine. People are different, and it is wise not to push people too quickly, especially those who come from a non-Christian background. I remember someone telling me that if fruit is still green, you can try to make it more edible by squeezing it to soften it, but you just bruise and spoil it that way. You have to wait for it to mature properly. I think practically sometimes we want everything to change at once, but the spiritual journey is a lifelong lifelong process. You know, Naaman had a problem. While he acknowledged, the story tells us that while he acknowledged the God of Israel, he would still have to return to his home country and support the king of Syria uh, on his arm and actually enter and bow with the king in a pagan temple before the god Rimon. Clearly Naaman had decided that his heart would be in, in it though. Uh, his heart would not be in it though, for he had taken the first crucial steps in accepting the god of Israel. Um, <clears throat> We may ask a question about Elisha's words to Naaman, go in peace. Perhaps, perhaps I could comment there. The prophet 
seemed to have enough confidence in Naaman by not pressing doctrinal or lifestyle change too hard for this new believer. Naaman's faith in the God of heaven, of course, had a lot of maturing to do. And Elijah sends him off to Syria with the hope that the Spirit of God will guide the ripening of Naaman's faith. In short, Joe, some people ripen in faith quicker than others. That's true. And it is God that oversees the process, not us. We'll move on to Nicodemus now. Jerry, just very briefly, who was Nicodemus and why did he come looking for Jesus under the cover of darkness? Okay, in uh, John chapter 3, verse 1, it says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And there's not a lot else said about Nicodemus in these verses. Uh, But at least we know he was a Pharisee and he was a member of the National Council called the Sanhedrin. So he was very influential. There is some other information also from John, uh, right at the end of John, where Jesus' body is taken from the cross. Uh, It is Nicodemus again who is present there. And uh, it says, if I could just quote, a Nicodemus who at first came to Jesus by night also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a 100 pounds. So he must have been quite wealthy as well. There is a lot more information to be found in the chapter on Nicodemus in the book um, Desire of Ages, which essentially tells us that, um, yeah, he was educated, he was is honoured because of his position. And, and Nicodemus had, he was a cautious man. He was attracted by the the message that this, this young uh, preacher was proclaiming. And unlike many others in the Sanhedrin, he wanted to get the the full story. So he was curious and he wanted to know for himself if this person was a genuine prophet or not. And considering how the prophets of old previously had been dealt with by the Jewish rulership, uh, he thought, well, you know, we have to be very careful here because often they would kill the prophets who came to uh, rebuke uh, the nation of the sin, the rulers of their sins. And as a result, the country would go into exile. So he felt that I want to get the bottom, you know, the the full story of this. But he couldn't do so openly. So that's why he had to, if you like, secretly meet Jesus and find out who are you exactly. If he would have come out in the open and said straight away, oh, I, I think we should listen to him. They they would have uh, dealt with him quite severely, I think, because the uh, uh, clearly the uh, Sanhedrin was not in a in a mood to uh, accept Jesus straight away. Because don't forget, just previously, and you can read that in chapter two of John, Jesus had cleaned out the temple because he was outraged that uh, they'd turned the temple into a marketplace, and he says, uh, "Away with you!" Yeah, so he overturned them. And I think he used the cover of darkness to, um, he he didn't want anyone seeing him go. He didn't want to tarnish his reputation. He wanted, you know, to keep things, yeah, Yeah. keep up appearances. Brenton, now he has a conversation with Jesus, and and did that go according to Nicodemus' expectations? Well, the conversation went something like this. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. 
for no one could do the um, miracles and the works that you do except God were with him. It's interesting. <clears throat> I don't know about you, Joe. When you meet a complete stranger for the first time, you're both sort of wondering what's going to happen here. Jerry was quoting from the book Desire of Ages. It actually states in there that he had a strange timidity when he met Jesus. If you look at the power imbalance here, Joe, uh, you have a ruler of the Jews. You have someone who's a member of the Sanhedrin, who's rich and learned, talking to a virtually unknown Galilean person who was coming to be known as a prophet. And Nicodemus thought this would be a good introductory phrase. He's not actually saying, I believe that you are the Messiah. He's simply saying the things you're doing can't be done unless God was with him. And Jesus looks at him as if reading his very soul and says to him, my friend, you need to be born again. And then he goes on to say that unless you're born of water, which is baptism and the spirit, you cannot even enter the kingdom of God. So the conversation is not going the way Nicodemus wanted. I think he wanted to have a theological discussion, and as Jerry quite rightly pointed out, a little bit more, find out a little bit more about this guy, what makes him tick and how it operates. And Jesus comes straight to the point. And Nicodemus says a little bit later, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Nicodemus knew full well what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about spiritual rebirth. This is the bit he's not getting um, because he's a Pharisee. He pays tithe. He gives big offerings every Sabbath at church. He's widely esteemed for his benevolence and for his charity towards unfortunate people and that sort of thing. And Jesus is basically saying, Joe, in your present state, my friend, you are not fit to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's right. <laughs> That's what he's struggling yeah. with. Yeah. That's a very good point. Lydia, how do we know that eventually Nicodemus made the right decision about Jesus? When the Jews were trying to destroy the infant church, Nicodemus came forward in his defense. Um, he encouraged the faith of the disciples and used his wealth in helping to sustain the church in uh, Jerusalem and in advancing the work of the gospel. Those who in other days had paid him reverence now scorned and persecuted him, and he became poor in this world's goods. Yet he faltered not in the defense of his faith. And we have an account on uh, in John chapter 19, verse 30, where it says that he participated in the taking the body of Jesus from the cross together with Joseph of Arimathea. And uh, he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 75 pounds. They took the body of Jesus, wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. So it means he helped even Jesus embalming his body. He was a covert disciple for a while and it didn't take, it, it took till Jesus died on the cross for him to come out and show his true colors, um, and, and come forward and be open about it. Now, Jerry, sometimes the right decision is hard, is too hard to make or appears to cost too much and the person turns away sorrowful, showing his conviction, but declining the offer. Is therefore being wealthy or knowledgeable a bad thing? 
In contrast to Nicodemus, what lessons could we learn from the story of the rich young ruler? Well, being wealthy is not a bad thing at all. That's how it affects you. Look, Jesus wouldn't have given this example if the uh, temptation that uh, wealth brings to shift your focus from God to your material possessions uh, is so strong. It's not a bad thing to be wealthy. There are many people in the Bible who are wealthy. However, for Jesus to say it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, that's quite telling. And, uh, and and we should bear that in mind too. If you look at the rich young ruler, and I have such sympathy for the, for this young guy. You think of it, a young person, he's wealthy, he is, um, I guess he's he's looked up to as well. I mean, he's doing all the right things. He thinks he's on the right path. And yet the outcome, according to the story, is that he went away sorrowful. He didn't realize his great need and that, in fact, he wasn't wealthy at all. Spiritually, he wasn't wealthy. He thought he was. But in the end, what good is it to you if you have everything that this world can offer, but you don't have a saving connection with the Lord? You're going to lose it all. Whereas if you compare that to Nicodemus, who had everything to start with as well, his response was quite different. He worked it through. And he realized that in losing everything ultimately in this world's goods, as you think about it, by choosing Jesus as his savior, which he did, he lost his position. He would have lost his position in the Sanhedrin. He would have been despised. He would have been considered a pariah, somebody who turned their back on them to take it up for this, this preacher who claimed to be the Messiah. Well, he did just that. And uh, and how it changed his life, we don't really know. But uh, it certainly was radically different than what it started out to be. But in the end, he won everything. He gained eternal life. Ultimately, we can have it all. Let's not focus on what, uh, what the things of this world, because the things of this world are always transitory. They don't last. Yes. Okay. Well, moving on, Brenton. While Nicodemus and the rich young ruler were respected people in their communities, people blessed and approved of God. How was Zacchaeus viewed? As chief tax collector, he lived in Jericho. Uh, the tax collectors were considered the scum of society. Um, they were also known as publicans. The Greek word is telones, and it means a tax farmer. Uh, they used to enrich themselves at the cost of the people that they were taxing because they used to skim off more over the top of uh, what they were allowed to take by the Romans. The Romans didn't mind if they charged more than that, providing the Romans got what was theirs. They could not um, testify in court. Banks didn't want their money and charitable gifts were refused. So they're just some of the characteristics of being a tax collector. You had your own circle of friends. And Jesus in the Bible, as you know, with Matthew and with others who were tax collectors, he had to reach them by sitting down at their table with them. He invited himself to Zacchaeus's place. And so <laughs> the difference between Zacchaeus, who was probably just as rich as Nicodemus or the rich young ruler, is that Zacchaeus realized his need initially. And uh, when Jesus said, come down, I'm going to your place today, um, he came down and he said, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. He'd already started to make restitution. Uh, with Nicodemus, it was a three and a half year project. 
And as uh, Jerry has mentioned with the rich young ruler, he never reached that point where he said, I will give you everything, Lord, and follow you. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Brenton, as you just pointed out, and uh, I believe for many people, the crash is their goods, money, position, uh, influence, whatever. And you may heard about that saying that uh, from people who don't believe in God necessarily, they say that for Christians, Jesus is the crutch. That's right. And I believe if you know Jesus, you don't need any crutch. You are uh, on the right uh, way. I will say the other way around is if you don't have God, you may put your trust in all other things. Lots of crutches. <laughs> all right. Lynn, now does this have... Uh, does this have implications for our ministry to the wealthy and powerful? What does this show us about the inclusiveness of Jesus? And what did Jesus know about Zacchaeus, which wasn't apparent to others? Do we judge too easily by the visuals? Well, it appears quite obvious that the things that Zacchaeus had did not satisfy. And I think we must be aware of the fact that there are very, very wealthy, rich, powerful people who are not satisfied with what they have. And when they get around to thinking about their lives and they ask the question, where did I come from? What am I doing here? What's the meaning of life? And where am I going? They are open to hear the word of God and how that they too can be saved. So we shouldn't judge people by their appearances. We shouldn't judge a book by its cover. We must be aware that these people have needs just as does anyone else. Well, also, another point is, like Zacchaeus, he acquired his money in a less than an appropriate way. Mm. So how easy it is for us to judge and avoid people, wealthy people, who we think, um, you know, it's easier to avoid them and, and assume that they're not interested in the kingdom simply by how they're, you know, whether they're acquired it in a less than appropriate way. Zacchaeus was surcharging and doing things that he shouldn't have been, but God, Jesus was not, you know, wasn't judging him for that. He wanted to win him to Christ. And sometimes we can make these judgments about people who are worthy and who are not. Lydia, how did Zacchaeus's conversion impact others for good? Uh, we observed here that uh, after Jesus had the conversation with Zacchaeus in his house, his words, Jesus' words had a big impact on, on, on his heart. And uh, in uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 8, it says, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. So he resolved the wrong he did before. Jesus didn't tell him, you know, to sell everything and give to the poor. But obviously, he was convinced by Jesus' words that he had to make some changes to his life, especially as it is related to his wealth. In conclusion, thank you, members of the panel, for your contribution. But in conclusion, while it is a bit simplistic to categorize people into groups, the rich and the poor, the powerful and the vulnerable, these are relative terms because we can be in a position of power over or be subject to another in the various phases of the day or even our lives. 
What is important is to remember that all are just people and should be treated like people, not according to some assessment or judgment or label we had made of them in our minds. All of them are loved supremely by God, whose desire is to save to the uttermost each and every one, regardless of station in life, history or baggage. And no matter what the position you think you are on this spectrum of wealth and power, even that of a lowly slave, God can use you to reach anyone. The key is to be willing and able. God does not need the rich and the powerful to reach to reach the rich and the powerful. Often God uses the weak and humble in mighty ways. It says in Corinthians that God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. The idea is not so much to target the rich and influential, to seek them out specifically, but if God brings them into your sphere of influence, to be like Elisha, the little maid, and Daniel, not shrinking away, watering down or fawning, but rise to the occasion in God's power to be a witness. Only God can read the heart, and we need to put away our insecurities and step up for God. Remember, if money and power is all they've got, then they are really poor indeed. We need not be ashamed or feel awkward because of our faith in Jesus. And this brings us full circle to the critical little verse we began with, something to take home and ponder on. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Matthew sixteen twenty five. Does God value you? Do I value myself more than you value yourself or me myself? Let's stop shortchanging ourselves with baubles and trinkets and human pride and turn to God wholeheartedly. So much more could be said, but time is up. And so thank you for our discussion today, and let's end it with a prayer. Brenton, would you like to pray for us, please? Certainly. Father in heaven, we've been challenged. Uh, last week we were challenged to uh, reach out to the needy. This week we're challenged to reach the rich. Lord, show us ways in which we can show them that we are friends and that we are desirous to see them in the kingdom of heaven. I know you have the answers. I know you will provide us with the solutions. We thank you for hearing us in Jesus' name. Amen. And thank you, everyone, for uh, your input. Indeed, a very important uh, aspect of uh, our ministry and mission to the powerful but my dear friend uh, listening today we are inviting you to join us again because we are going to approach uh, over two weeks this aspect of uh, mission to the unreached i believe that will be a very interesting one until then may god richly bless you and continue to walk in the footsteps of jesus god has a mission for you too